This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 173, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Dave Washburn, CEO of N-Chain, that's N as in the letter, who are in a small consortium and working on a fascinating project with the Tuvalu government to put all of its records on a digital ledger, aka blockchain, thus becoming the first country in the world to be fully digitised. Tuvalu, as you am sure you will all know, comprises nine islands, has a domestic revenue of some $60 million, a chunk of which comes from its ownership of the .tv domain, has around 11,000 population, but does not have an electronic banking system. The plan is to move the country's national register to the blockchain, which will be followed by an exploration into digital currency, a huge feat of technological leapfrogging. Cure. Well, I'm sure that raises plenty of questions, along with my usual one about when you say blockchain, what do you mean by blockchain? And issues, as do all first-generation innovations. We'll start by discussing the fascinating Tuvalu project and then widen out to issues raised as a whole by digitization. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Dave. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Well, I've had a funny old day, um, and as we were just discussing, I used to actually enjoy most because I like random things, I used to enjoy most the, the intro chat with guests on the basis it used to be random. But these days, sadly, I find it the most depressing because if I say to somebody, what have you done recently? Then most guests for the last 12 months said, I've stayed at home and looked at my computer, which was a fascinating topic of conversation for several months. But then the novelty wore off. But as we're getting, going to get on to digitisation, I, I thought that a, it occurred to me, I've had a very strange digital day one way or another. So this is kind of one of the possibilities of, of digitisation, really, that you can live a, live a very crazy life without actually going anywhere. So not a long story short, there's a chap called Mark Majerski, who is a, a British healer, esoteric healer, clairvoyant person who lives in Spain. He's got a very good YouTube channel that I watch occasionally. And uh, he had some healing session this morning. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. And you know, plenty of people listening to the podcast will quite understandably think this is a load of rubbish and I don't know what I'm talking about. And I would have thought the same 20 years ago, since when 20 years of Qigong and meditation and stuff later, the world is a stranger place. Nevertheless, I did this healing session and I was completely chilled. I was the most chilled and tranquil I've been the entire year, as a result of which I was far too spaced out <laughs> to do any work whatsoever. Uh, so I went to Waitrose and, and, and got some shopping in uh, and sort of tied up a little bit. So I was still spaced out late in the morning. And then I caught up with uh, Bridget and I are doing a, a Taoist course online talking about doing weird stuff. Uh, I caught up with a Tai Chi lesson. I've done Tai Chi decades ago. This is a more internal version, which is a British instructor who lives in Portugal, but he's wintering in Bali. And then at lunch, Bridget and I watched the World Championships Biathlon, which was from Slovenia, the, the women's mass start. And, and when I was talking to her about how digital means you do stuff all over the world, and you don't really know where it is. She pointed out that she's actually doing this brilliant French cookery academy. Anybody into French cooking, check out French Cooking Academy on YouTube. There's a fantastic uh, French guy giving it. And he's based in Australia. <laughs> and then when we were talking, I, I, you sort of feel Canadian to me. But in chain, as I'm sure you'll explain, is London as well. So then I didn't know whether in Canada or London. So it's really very bizarre in that I would not have believed 20 years ago, talking about not believing stuff 20 years ago, then actually sort of a lot of it comes true. I've not believed that kind of stuff 20 years ago. So on the one hand, on the one hand, it can be a cornucopia of you can do amazing things literally just by looking at pixels on a screen. 
because the pixels can show you all sorts of things about all sorts of stuff. So it's a phenomenal thing, digitization. On the other hand, of course, it presents challenges, not least of which, as I mentioned, the new special that sort of it seems to be uh, ushering in a period of totalitarianism and corporatism. But, you know, let's not worry about that one. But <laughs> yeah, so so it's kind of a it's almost like a heaven and a hell. I mean, when I was a kid, as I mentioned before, there was a small library near me. People didn't have many books because books were quite expensive. And as I've said before, rationing carried on to a few years before I was born. So people didn't have much money in the 60s and 70s. But now, actually, you don't even need that much money because if you want to do any of these courses I'm talking about, well, well, the healing was free. The Tai Chi courses for, for one of the best people in the world is about 100 quid a year, which is next to nothing. So it's a phenomenal world in terms of heaven and hell and a hell of a distance in between. Yeah, there have definitely um, been challenges and benefits uh, through this whole period in the past, uh, you know, pushing a year now that we've seen from a workplace environment perspective, it's really quite amazing how we've got people working all over the world and they're able to feel more connected to their colleagues now than they did before during a, you know, much more traditional workplace environment. It's pretty interesting. Yes, and um, just before we, we set off, you, you, you actually sort of had to go out the door and tie up and gag your children for the, <laughs> the period of an hour. And I laugh, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that my kids mostly got through a lot of their childhood before sort of mobile phones in your bedroom came along and, and all the stuff from that. But of course, they and all their friends got hit by the sort of tremendous increase in anxiety that's happened over the time. So digitization as a whole is not just, as some people not involved in technology see it, which is, it's a technology thing, isn't it? You know, oh, computer can do something different. Yes, but that's just the start of it, you know. It's like the invention of printing press or I don't know, the invention of a motor car. It's not just, oh, look, there's an engine and it can make a motor car. There's infinite number of consequences. And, and all of us, no matter where we sit on the, on the whole digital transformation of the world, we have no idea what the world's going to look like in five or ten years' time. We can see a hell of a lot of problems that need to be fixed sooner rather than later. But maybe that's sort of, we can, we can talk about that in the context of the digitization of the processes. So in terms of digital world, and, and you weren't born in a digital world, What's your career journey been today, Dave? Yeah, my career journey is a, a little bit of an unconventional one. So I've been CEO at Enchain uh, for just under two years now. Prior to that, I spent most of my professional career in traditional financial services, uh, most recently running the, the Canadian arm of a global investment bank. So old school finance is where I've, uh, where I've cut my teeth. So I'm really familiar with uh, a lot of the challenges that exist in what is an industry that has by and large been pretty slow to change and adapt to this new digital economy, but there are definitely a lot of opportunities to, to be part of that change. And then prior to finance, uh, I was a scientist. I, I did a PhD in, in biophysics. So I've really uh, been able to cover a lot of different ground, frankly. So in terms of the biophysics, talking about random, random stuff before we dive into digitization, it's quite a while since I looked at these things, but biology was quite a big subject when I did it, and physics was quite a big subject when I did it. So the intersection of the two is presumably a bit smaller, but it's still pretty large. So which tiny, tiny bit of biophysics did you do or did you do it all? Right. So in my, in my PhD, I worked on uh, one little tiny part of the brain that's responsible for controlling a lot of the autonomous functions. Those are the things that are really important for you to live, but you don't think about or have the ability to control. So things like blood pressure, respiration, fluid balance, etc. So I worked on describing how neurons in that particular part of the brain actually work and exert their function and respond to external stimuli. Oh, interesting. And what sort of thing that you found by doing your research? 
perception. Yeah, ultimately just trying to understand um, better how the brain is involved when these processes go poorly. So things like hypertension, high blood pressure, working on understanding the molecular mechanisms through which those signals are translated. Oh, very interesting. So you were busy doing these very different fields. So what led you from the, uh, it's not the hippocampus, is it? What is it called, that little area? Well, actually, it's called the subfornical organ is the one that I uh, worked on in my PhD, but actually the, the hippocampus, it's a great segue there. Uh, in my postdoctoral work, I actually did work on the hippocampus, which is a much more complex network and um, working on understanding the mechanisms through which neurons talk to each other in the hippocampus, you know, for constructive things like laying down memory and uh, pathophysiological states like epilepsy. Okay, so... Um... The obvious question. Oh, so how did you go from there to here then? Right. So the move into finance was an interesting one. Um, I started covering biotechnology stocks at an independent investment bank. So that was the link between my science career and finance. And doing some pretty extensive modeling during that research time meant that modeling financial models of companies was pretty straightforward, actually. I see. So before we dive into the main course, long-term listeners of the podcast will know my bugbear with the word blockchain. We're talking about how the world changes as a whole, but actually words, especially new word, words, change their meaning, meaning very rapidly. I mean, we, you know, you, you can read Shakespeare and think you understand it. Well, actually, you can think you understand 50% maybe if you're in my case, but actually then 25% of it you don't understand because the words mean something completely different then, even though you think there's something now. So back in the day when I would have first heard of blockchain, I don't know, 2013, 2014 or something like that, blockchain was, roughly speaking, uh, associated with something like Bitcoin and Satoshi's mechanism and um, a way of killing polar bears and, uh, you know, proof of work, yardy, 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 all that kind of jazz. Just from a semantic perspective these days, in terms of the millions of emails that come in every month, people use blockchain, if I was trying to define it for a dictionary based on the emails coming to me, as something much more like all categories of distributed database. I'm not being cynical, it's used in many ways. So let's not get into semantics of all that. When I said blockchain on your behalf, and on Tuvalu's behalf, just so the listeners know where we are on that spectrum of it's a very precise mechanism too. It's absolutely bloody anything these days. And if you say it, you get more funding, which I've, I've heard a very big bank got told that by IBM. They went along to, I won't mention the bank, of course, they went along to see IBM, Watson or whatever, all the sort of clever cloggy chaps and said, oh yes, we, we want your help. Oh, excellent, they said, because they quite like getting fees like everyone else. And uh, what, what is it with? Well, we want, um, we, we want to use the blockchain uh, for this. And I said, oh, so they looked at the thing, you don't need the blockchain. No, yes, we do. And I've been saying, no, 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 look, we understand this very well. You don't need the blockchain. No, 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 so you don't understand. If we don't use the word blockchain, we won't get the funding from the board. <laughs> In which case, the word blockchain is a mechanism of funding, but so it means many things to many people. Putting that one side, when you say blockchain, Dave, what do you mean? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really, really important question you've raised, Mike, and it, it certainly highlights one of the issues out there from the public perception and business implementation of blockchain-based solutions. So on one end, side of the coin, you outlined you know, distributed ledger technology end of it, which can really be databases run in multiple copies that are in walled gardens, right? From our perspective, that's not so much of a blockchain. We really focus on public proof of work based blockchains. Okay, so, well, let's put Tuvalu then. So in, in the Tuvalu project case, and then let's move later out to the whole, whole sort of digitization of which blockchain just becomes one technology of many, many. In Tuvalu's case, how many, let's just use the word database, uh, how many 
versions of the database are, are there? Are there like 100 running on 100 computers owned by 100 different people, or, or is it actually just sort of the one, like the DVLC in the UK that owns driver's licenses and they've got a computer and, okay, they've got backups and stuff, but I'm stalking schematically. Right, so um, that's jumping ahead a little bit. So we haven't implemented the solution yet, so I can't actually give you a precise answer there, but what I will do is give you uh, a better description of what it is we're up to. So at Enchain, all of the enterprise-grade solutions we build are based on one public blockchain, that's the Bitcoin SV blockchain, which is a widely distributed proof of work based Bitcoin blockchain. And the reason we do that is ultimately because of the scalability. Um, it's from everything that we can tell the most scalable blockchain out there at all. Like, so we don't see any real competition there. And by scalable, we mean transaction frequency on one end of the spectrum and then the cost to process a transaction on the other end. So with what we're working on, we're dealing in the ability to scale to truly enterprise or government-sized applications at very low price points. Okay, so I take the point and I think it's well made and, you know, this isn't a, a technical show here, which is that in Dickensian terms, you've got some guy with a copper plate pen and a ledger and they've got a safe and all the information is there and you need to access that bloke in his room and you need to get it out and, and, and actually it's, it's, there isn't a bloke in a room with a copper plate pen, but it doesn't really matter because actually it's just a way of storing and as you say, with your knowledge of the many techniques applicable at the appropriate stage, you'll choose the appropriate technique, but really it's actually to meet, I was about to say a business need, but in this case it's a... Uh, it's a state need. So well, let's give a little bit of the sort of background and the history. So I'm not entirely familiar with Tuvalu, despite my sort of fascinating in-depth sentence <laughs> in the introduction. So why did, let's sort of just use the word Tuvalu rather than sort of the government or, or whatever or whoever. Why did Tuvalu as a whole suddenly wake up one morning and think, oh, we need to digitise our entire island? Yeah, so um, on this Tuvalu project, we're working with uh, two other groups, FIA and ELAS, and FIA have a, a deep connection to Tuvalu. So they've got the real kind of insight into the, the cultural and economic issues that are going on there. But the one soundbite that I'll, I'll leave for the listeners here is that Tuvalu is the country that is perhaps the most likely to be affected by rising sea levels associated with climate change. So the, the government and the people there are really looking at how to best mitigate that and deal with the potential for a really unprecedented situation of having to potentially relocate the entire population and, and economy of a country. So that was really the catalyst for looking at how they can be technology forward in dealing with this problem. So Tuvalu, in this sense, is a little bit of a microcosm of, of all the things that we think about collectively associated with climate change and what to do about it. Yes, and I'm very tempted, but I shall, for once in my life, be disciplined not to go down that particular rabbit hole because... Uh, That's a different podcast. Exactly. I didn't, uh, I, I, I didn't pay that much attention to that kind of stuff. But uh, in the old normal, I got grabbed to the shoulders by a mate and said, this climate change is really serious stuff. And then that Christmas, I listened to a, a couple of podcasts and uh, fascinated to find out that uh, actually there was a... A significant body of opinion thinks that actually, given the sunspot cycles, mumble, mumble, we're in for global cooling. So media narratives and, and all that kind of stuff and the science is settled and all these kind of things flow to the background. But the impish thought I had was um, is that it will be Sod's law that Tuvalu gets five years into this and then actually everyone realises that it's actually relocating people to Tuvalu because sea levels are full <laughs> or something. Anyway, that's, that's by the by. They have to decide where they are. So on the money thing, do they not shadow the Australian dollar and run out of cash and, uh, and you know, and then, as I was saying, I don't really have a sort of 
electronic banking system in on it? How does that sort of work? Yeah, that's right. So if you step back for a second and think about um, Tuvalu, like many island nations uh, around the world, still are largely physical based in terms of both records and currency. So um, most small islands you go to, you'll notice that there's a a higher cash utilization rate than is typical in a lot of other places now. So you you don't see electronic payments being a big part of what they're up to. So as you pointed out, they they did actually have some challenges running out of physical cash at one point. And given their remote location, there's significant logistics associated with that. So this really spurned the idea for them to look at ways that they can use technology to deal with um, these challenges that are fairly unique uh, to them and other island nations. Okay, and I like the potential relocation point. I mean, it sounds very sort of sci-fi, really. You know, yeah. uh, we've all seen various episodes. I think it's one of Stargate, a bit like that, which is that your planet's in peril and you will have to get off in an arc and whatever. And I can certainly understand that if you've got to take all of these quill pens and all these accounts ledgers for everything from driving license to property records to currency, you name it, you'd need quite a lot of time packing um, it's bad enough moving house without moving an entire nation. And I can quite see that it actually, if you can bung it all on a USB stick, <laughs> metaphorically speak, and that would make things quite simple. So in terms of the Top Gear question, and I haven't done a one in Tuvalu, they should do one, um, although it's now been disbanded. How hard can it be? So schematically, you know, I, I've got a whiteboard and I, I draw a few boxes with a dot, dot, dot and say, these are the various records, e.g. driving license, e.g. property, whatever. And what we want you to do, Dave, is just digitise it, you know, stick it on the computer using this blockchain thing. Thank you very much. You know, how hard can it be? So without going into the the whole details of project management and all the various dimensions and that kind of stuff, but how hard can it be? I mean, is it some of these things actually fairly straightforward? I mean, let's take the, the, the UK. You've got the DVLC. They've got all the driving licences presumably, ha-ha, and it won't be this simple because I've been involved in a project myself, presumably you go along to the DVLC and say, oh, can you give me a USB stick? Oh, here we go, thank you very much. And, and then, then you go live and they, they turn off that computer. And, you know. So schematically, something like that, where all the information is in one place is fairly simple. You go in the UK to the national property records, not all of property, bizarrely, is recorded. I can't, I've forgotten, it's about half the property, nobody knows who owns it. Right. Stuff like that. So then you get into the fact that actually the data isn't there in the first place. So there's all multiple dimensions of it. Well, you know, just trying to simplify that a little bit. How hard is it to digitize an entire nation <laughs> on a scale of naught to 10? <laughs> That's right. I'm going to answer that in two parts. So the actual physical part of digitizing a document, that's not very hard and that's not very proprietary. And frankly, it's not very interesting. But being able to do it in a way that allows the data to be interoperable, i.e., the information from the driver's license registry and perhaps the property registry are in a form where they're accessible and tied to the same common person. Because right now, so much of the world's data is in silos and it's stuck. So ultimately, you know, at Enchain, we're looking at developing solutions that really allow data to be monetized and the value of data to be unlocked for the stakeholders. So this, this Tuvalu project isn't so much about making sure we've got a digital representation of a physical document. That's the simplest base layer of the whole thing. The idea is to be able to create an interoperable mechanism through which that information can be accessed properly, efficiently, and with as little friction as possible. We did a show at the end of last year on, on digital ID, which is a sort of central thing like that, which is that you know if Mike has got a sort of a, a number tattooed on his forehead and it's a, and it's a unique identifier, let's just say globally to make it sort of 
the simpler, then that makes it uh, easier. But then there was plenty of challenges to the digital ID. So just finishing off on Tuvli, so what kind of timescale is this hoped to be completed over? Yeah, great question. Ultimately depends on how broad the scope gets. But in a perfect world, I'd love to uh, come back on here in two years and tell you about how we have completed the entire digital transformation. Oh, excellent. Well, if it is two years, you're um, certainly welcome back. And if it is four years or six years, you're certainly uh, welcome back as well. I mean, when you're scaling out new technologies, things are always more sort of challenging because you're meeting certain classes of problem that haven't really been met for the, for the first time just by going there. And uh, in terms of, as I say, watching random stuff, uh, we quite like watching, when we can, Chris Tarrant's Extreme Railways. Um, Chris Tarrant being very relevant to Brummies like Bridget and myself, in that when we were young, <laughs> In the 1970s, the ITV was the independent TV channel, something called Tis Was, Today, Saturday, Watch and Smile, which was the unacceptable thing to, to watch. And then there was the BBC morning programme, which is very anodyne. The Tis Was was sort of very anarchic in a sort of hippie punk way. And so much so, I actually remember my, uh, one of my mother's friends coming in saying, Oh, Mike's watching Tis Was. And my mother being terribly <laughs> embarrassed. Anyway, Chris Tarrant's got known for plenty of other things. But his show, if you want to take your brain out one evening, Chris Tarrant's Extreme Rallies, it goes all around the world, being around Canada, north of Russia, absolutely everywhere. Absolutely fascinating bunch of series because, as well as his sort of dry and laconic way of presenting, he goes into the history of it. And, you know, some of these railways, man, you know, like thousands of people's died. And some of them, they forecast it would take a year and it took 10. And, you know, and I mentioned that as an example of a huge transformation of the physical infrastructure of the world. Right. And in terms of how hard can it be? Well, actually, it can't be that hard but then it turns out to be harder. And I think that you know, <laughs> with the kind of projects, which is how hard can it be to digitize a whole nation? I think that's a question we'll know a much better answer of when you guys are finished. Yeah, and I think the, the important concept here as well is we're focused on building something that's highly scalable and transferable. So in a perfect world, what we implement here for Tuvalu could work just easily in a country with a thousand times the population. Yes, so it's not just a dash for the finishing line, you know, cheap and cheerful as fast as possible. That's right. You want to do a good job, unsurprisingly. Okay, so that's Tuvalu. and That's really sort of fascinating. I hadn't actually sort of um, heard of that one. But let's expand because there's much wider issues raised, as I sort of said at the beginning about um, all the challenges of whether you're a parent or whether you're a citizen and, and what's happening because of the change in technology. Plenty of things for the good and plenty of things for the bad. So we could spend the rest of the year talking about the benefits and challenges of, of digitization and all the impacts on society and individuals as a whole. But just to try and draw out key themes from that, it seems to me that perhaps the question is addressed in terms of two things really and you do feel like you can add more the first is whose data is it anyway we've had this with sort of you know open banking all that kind of stuff where the idea is that my banking data is mine and it's not sort of NatWest banks or whatever so whose data is it anyway which we'll be familiar with and then going back to my much broader agendas of being interested in everything all the time one of the key let's call it political or socio-cultural things is who gets empowered by a particular digital transformation am I are you, are the listeners, empowered by a certain digital transformation? Let's say open banking, for example. That's probably a good example where actually the individuals are, have been empowered at the expense of the banks because they can sort of port stuff around or, or certain amount and then it's going to open FS. So that's one kind of thing. Another kind of digital transformation is where the state is empowered. And we've certainly seen one way and another huge increases in the power that the state deems itself to have and how it relates to the citizens. And as I've said before, not my favourite topic, but... There's an extent to which many countries, the governments and states, does not see themselves 
as a servant of the people, but the master of the people. And tech is one part, part of all that kind of stuff. I mean, we couldn't have, for example, lockdowns if computers didn't exist, because nobody had ever known. And you couldn't sort of, you couldn't have 5,000 page bills go through parliament because nobody could time that fast. So is it a question that whose data is a really important question and who gets empowered if you have to try and narrow down to two really vital things that all of us as, as, as citizens and consumers and, and whatever, in a particular case of digital translation need to ask, and there's no generic answer. It's neither good nor is it bad, like everything. Yeah, perhaps I can go to the second one first, that concept of who gets empowered, I think is a really interesting one. So if we want to use the example of a, of a sovereign digital transformation, in most cases, these things will happen in stepwise function, not uh, on a wholesale function like is going on with Tuvalu. But one of the interesting angles that we look at here is the, what I'll call a reciprocal arrangement. So we could use a central, the concept of a central bank digital currency, for example, because it's very topical right now. And it's one that I think there's a lot of debate and discussion over. So on one side of the coin, individuals or businesses may be concerned that by using a central bank digital currency, there's more of a, an electronic trail of their uh, financial habits than perhaps they would otherwise. And um, in reality, I don't think that's all that different than what happens right now with electronic payments, credit cards, etc. Um, it is, of course, different than using physical cash. And and I think the regulatory framework for that information will evolve over time as we see some CBDCs or, uh, or related technology implemented. The corollary, though, is that this becomes a mechanism through which accountability and transparency on the part of the government is increased dramatically. So the ability of the citizens in any particular nation to really get a, an actual bona fide transparent look at what taxpayer money funds are, are used for and how by whom. So I, I look at it as being a really interesting counterbalance between uh, the individual data and what the uh, what the individual citizens can get back. So that concept of transparency and accountability on the, behar uh, on, on the part of governments is a really, really critical one to this. Yes, and talking about my random digital day, I was reading um, before coming online with you about the state of the Czech elections, where their Pirate Party is doing extremely well. And, and one of the things they're for is digitization and transparency and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, I guess the simple thing is to say, is a knife good or bad? Well, in the hands of a surgeon, it cures. In the hands of a murderer, it, it kills. And in the same way, digitization can be pointed one way or another. It has great potential, but actually here's a good, here's a good even fintech way of looking at it. It's the governance rules around it. So for example, with credit cards, it's not just a piece of plastic and how the money flows. I use my MasterCard. I gave an example last year. <laughs> we went skiing for about half an hour. Anyway, an insurance company dropped us in it, but actually MasterCard said, well, actually you didn't get your full holiday and they gave us the money back. Now that's scheme rules, as we know in the, in the payments world. And that applies to credit cards, but it doesn't apply to bank cards. So even in something as old fashioned as using a piece of plastic to play for stuff. There are still huge differences with the implementation stuff. And, you know, going back to the Tuvalu stuff, I can quite imagine that, let's say you digitize 10 parameters and they're all done in different frameworks, the Tuvaluese could be voting at the end and go, hey, we love numbers one to six, this really empowered us. Hang on, we don't like number nine. You know, this, this, this has happened, let alone the law of unintended consequences, which is one of the things that sort of happens. And I think one of the key elements to the solutions that we're working on is this concept of permissioned access to the data. So to be able to have, you know, the presence of data largely in, um, you know, cryptographic form means that not everyone can look at a blockchain and see what Mike did yesterday with his, with his money, right? So it's obfuscated in, in that regard, but it is tamper resistant 
and indelible, which I think is the really the fundamental core of that whole thing. The concept of permissioned access should mean that the, the individual or business that generates that data has some mechanism through which they can control who has access to it. And of course, that also provides a monetization point, the ability for people or businesses to actually get paid for the data they generate and for you know others in, who, in whose hands that data is more valuable to be able to pay others for that data. So for example, the, your credit card analogy there, does that credit card company sell any of the data that you generated by use of your credit card? That's in the, in the 14 pages of microscopic print that you signed at the bottom of when you activated your card. Exactly, that I didn't read all 14 pages of. That reminds me of a gentleman whose ex-wife I work with, Tim Berners-Lee, who invented something called the World Wide Web. You may have heard of it, and I haven't followed his career in great detail because there's a limit to me trying to follow everything at the same time. But when I looked, he was going back to the, the question that you, you, you'll come back to, which is whose data is it anyway, and anonymization, pseudonymization, and, and, and mumble, mumble, mumble. But uh, Mr. Berners-Lee is a bit concerned that his, his great invention is sort of, uh, someone's pulled the points at a fork and he's got off shooting in a direction that he, he wasn't originally intending. You, you know, he lined a train up to go in that direction and suddenly it's done a 180. Absolutely. I mean, the, the data generating capabilities uh, of the internet, I doubt were at all part of the vision. But now you look at that being the backbone behind the business models of some of the largest companies in the world now, making money off other people's data. It's the reason Facebook and Google exist. Yes, and let alone one or two oligarchs censoring the, the, the US president who just got 70 odd million votes, whether you think orange man's good or bad. So th there's all sorts of stuff there, an intervention, the political process. And I think there was a presentation to Congress actually on how Google's ability to order search results and stuff like that can actually just change people's opinion. So, you know, these are one of the challenges, which is that the, the availability of all this information can give, oh, let's just call it PR, let's be very, very polite, can give PR people, as we've seen in the UK, the ability to um, uh, manipulate people's perceptions and then them into accepting policies they would never accept otherwise. So, okay, so that, that's all very complicated. So on the whose data is it anyway? I just wanted your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important um, concept to address. And it, it's certainly not something that's answered best in a, in a blanket statement. <laughs> Most of my life is spent with blanket statements. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, one of the catchphrases that's out there a lot right now is the, the idea that if, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. And I think we're all very familiar with the types of data that are generated without our knowledge. We're actually working on a project in the healthcare space right now, um, working with a company in the U.S. that's uh, have about 35 years of experience in uh, pharmacy data management and provide a lot of the, the back-end information rails for uh, a good chunk of the U.S. pharmacy system. And it's been a really interesting project there because what they're looking to do is actually create a unified electronic health record. And so if you're familiar at all with healthcare data, and I think it's similar in almost every country in that it's very siloed, very partitioned, and it's very cumbersome to access that data, either for the individual or for their various healthcare providers. The siloing of that healthcare data creates huge extra cost in the healthcare system, definitely leads to inefficiencies and uh, a less optimal patient outcome for sure. So the, the idea of putting the individual's healthcare data in an interoperable form is a really, really noble one. And you can see there are a lot of great benefits there. The really interesting part of it comes from the concept of creating a platform by which the individuals can control access to their health data and eventually be paid for it. 
So that's turning it on its head in terms of this idea of whose data is it, who owns it, how do you get to use it? Because right now, if, if you're wearing you know, one of those Apple smartwatches, for example, or a Fitbit, there's data being generated there all the time. Your location data, how much you exercise, what your heart rate is. So these can be really valuable to certain players. So what we're working on there is a, is a scenario ultimately that will enable individuals who generate that type of data, and I'm thinking more of the, the soft healthcare data here, to be able to actually be, be paid for it. And there's a whole universe you can imagine of how it changes the dynamics of research, clinical trials, drug approval processes, for example. So you, you can think of an example of a large pharmaceutical company, rather than paying you know hundreds of millions of dollars for a post-launch phase four trial where you have to do a controlled process, they could, you know, for example, enroll patients and actually pay them for that data, that real-time walking around with the watch data and see how they perform on, on that drug post-marketing. So that's a really simplistic way of describing the situation, but being able to empower individuals to access markets for their data rather than having it uh, be monetized by someone else without their knowledge is a really, uh, really important paradigm shift. Yes. Hearing you talk about that makes me think it's going to be a, a fascinating decade. And, and going back to Mr. Berners-Lee being a little bit unhappy with how things have gone, the more that it can be done by people of good heart, the better. Because just for the sake of argument, to use a sort of, again, just a simplistic perspective on the world, you know, quotes neoliberalism, unquotes, and corporatism, isn't exactly delivering the best outcome for the, the greatest number of people. It's leading to this massive concentration of wealth and binds the politics and, and, and yada, yada, yada. And I can see that uh, people with good heart, the elves from Lord of the Rings, for example, if they implemented this, you can end up with a, a really much better situation. And I also think that societies are always terribly slow at doing this. The example I, I use is from, from my book, which is that in the 19th century, you had these dark satanic mills and you had kids sent up chimneys and all this kind of stuff and you know that was a sort of side effect of quotes capitalism unquotes or the industrial revolution but then after a while people said no we don't want that we don't want to send kids up chimneys that's not very nice we don't like dark satanic mills and you get sort of a bunch of legislation and society sorts that out and these days you don't find many kids up chimneys and i suspect in the same way and it may take 10 20 30 40 years or something you won't have the kind of situation we have now with social media or children's anxiety or something because people have said hang on this is all wonderful but you know, kids' anxiety is tenfold what it was 30 years ago. We've got to sort that, and it will be sorted somehow. Okay, so a huge topic. We're, we're going to sort of touch on it and give sort of various flavours of, of some of the sort of uh, main causes to come. A crazy thing we could talk about for the next 10 years. What's the future of digital transformation, Dave? Yeah, I think the, the future is going to be a really, really interesting one with almost unbounded potential, frankly. And uh, again, I come back to this concept of taking data out of silos and making it truly interoperable, reducing the friction associated with access to information or increasing the the ability to give permissioned access is a really core fundamental to this whole digitization concept. But I think it's here to stay for sure. And five years from now, uh, we probably won't be talking about it as a thing because so much of it will be already part of people's real uh, everyday lives. Absolutely. And going back to academia, it, it strikes me, and I'm sure this has probably happened already, but there'll be plenty of professorships of the ethics of data in future because there's lots of questions to be addressed right so before i wrap up the show i'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand part for the podcast and finally i put the thumb screws on small pension uh, and got an updated um, uh, shout out for them they've been so busy that they haven't got around to giving it to me they, they call themselves smart these days they've uh, scaled up and also not just doing the uk pensions but actually now retelling the platform because it's been so successful anyway the new vocabulary is smart 
is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. TheEnlistedBoard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. And as per my shout out in previous ones, in the first quarter, if any listeners would like any sort of free mentoring on entrepreneurial governance or their boards or FS or FinTech or business mentoring, in the first quarter, I'm trying to light a few small candles rather than rail against the darkness. So check out www.clarity.fm slash Mike Ballyman slash LFP for 30 minutes free mentoring on any of those. Right. Okay. So Dave, you've been a very good guest. Most guests are naughtier than you in that they manage to sneak in the mention of their company every other word. But actually, we've got to, got to this stage, and I'm not sure that I, uh, let alone the listeners, have a full understanding of, of the kind of things you do. So maybe you'd like to just briefly explain what Enchain does to the extent that any of the millions of listeners listening into this need exactly that. They should be checking you out. And then more specifically, whether you're after motherhood and apple pie or sex, drugs and rock and roll or maybe something different. Thanks, Mike. At Enchain, we're working toward delivering enterprise-grade blockchain solutions for business. The key part of our solutions is harnessing the power of our technology to better understand, organize, use, and eventually monetize data. That way of thinking forms the background for everything we're doing when we're facing our enterprise clients. Enchain now is over 200 people with a large focus on engineering, and research. We're one of the global leaders in intellectual property in the blockchain space with one of the earliest and largest portfolios of patents. We're now working to turn that research-based knowledge into products that are of benefit to real-world business. Good. Okay, so I've got the big picture thing. So you're obviously great and powerful at the moment and clearly know a lot about this stuff. And if in a few years' time you're going to be even more great and even more powerful, what kind of things would actually accelerate that journey? Do you need more island governments to contact you or the sort of a broader sphere that you're aiming at client-wise? Yeah, we're, we're definitely uh, aiming much much more broad than that. So <laughs> businesses large and small, but we're about to roll out a platform of products that we think will make it really easy for businesses to plug their existing business logic systems into our platform. The idea being here is that for existing businesses to be able to benefit from the power of uh, the blockchain-based solutions that we're implementing, they don't need to know anything about blockchain. They don't need to know anything about Bitcoin. They just uh, need a a proper API from us to be able to point their existing uh, business systems towards. And we think that's one of the most interesting and potentially revolutionary parts of all this. So in a perfect world, Mike, going back to the way you started the interview here, businesses would be able to work with us without ever have to even use the word blockchain. Excellent, excellent. Right, well, time's shot by. And I think, if anything, it's just given me a flavor and perhaps the listeners that this digital transformation lark has kind of got fractal complexity. You know, you, you think, oh, I'll zoom in. I'll get a bit of better understanding after speaking to Dave. And so I've zoomed in and go, oh, my God, there's a thousand times more complexity than I thought. And I could keep sort of zooming in and zooming in. So certainly it's a fascinating sphere to be involved in. And it's a fascinating sphere as actually it does, uh, I think, without hyperbole, it does cut across the whole of human existence, really. It's not just you've got a, I don't know, a rotary wankle engine in, in the car rather than the four-cylinder engine, but actually the car still does what the car does. It is one of these things like railways or industrial revolutions, which actually transform society. And people at the time have got some idea how it's going to do it. But 10, 50, 100 years later, they go, oh, right, gosh, I didn't realise that would happen. <laughs> 
So completely agree, Mike. It seems a fascinating topic, and if it's a long way from the, the hippocampus, I'm sure lots of people's hippocampuses are, are very busy producing biochemicals and are getting very excited about this, or or over physiologically aroused, or, or something like that. So um, uh, maybe it'll all loop back full circle one day. So thank you very much, for that Dave, and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.